Section 3 is what we're doing, and I forget the page number where, where it is, and somebody can just yell that out. You probably are there before I am. And uh, why don't we get started? For those of you who are visiting with us or just joining with us, what we're trying to do is a Bible study training program to train you to do the Bible studies and to give you that information. So we're doing a round one, round two type situation. Round one is just going through it together to make sure we're all on the same page. Round two is going to be those of you here next next spring, early summer, you say, hey, I'd like to get more involved and to go deeper in the material so that I can conduct a Bible study with one, two, three, four different individuals so that I can do this with co-workers or family or friends. So we're going to, this is all involved with training and preparing you to be able to do some of the material. Try to explain this to people as do these Bible studies. And so the material that we're giving to you and trying to go over and take time to go over is basically we're approaching it with a twofold approach. One, training you. Two is saying, okay, let's just make sure everybody here has had this initial training. And so we're trying to give you this material. Follow as best as you can in the books, especially as a, just a warning this morning. Um, I'm not following their, quite the way they presented it as far as page numbers. Okay, just because um, I, I would have shifted the pages a little bit, and I'm going to shift them in my mind because it makes a more logical progression. So the, down at the corners, you'll see page numbers, and they'll bounce around in this first part of the section. But follow along as we get going. We're in the section now, section number three, that's talking about confession. Now, when I think confession, growing up in the Catholic Church, the first thought that always came to my mind when the first time they did a Bible study with me is they said, you need to have a regular time of confession. And my original reaction was, are you kidding me? we got to go back to the confessional and talk to the Baptist preacher about our sins? And I thought we had gotten rid of that. And then they had to explain to me what confession was. Now, you know, a lot of you are so, so more, much more familiar with the Scriptures. And you understand, but pretend and I keep in mind, if you're explaining this to somebody, somebody may not understand your terminology. You've got to explain your terminology. And so explain that. Okay, when I talk about confession, I'm not standing up, uh, I'm not talking about standing up and making a public statement or going into a little box and making those statements. We're talking about confessing our sins to the Lord on a one-to-one basis. And it's so important that we do this. Uh, let me see if I can give you an illustration. And I've shared this with, you be- with some of you before. You know, when I was in college, I'm working in uh, the, the detail work of getting cars cleaned and stuff like that that they're selling, the new Cadillacs. And they decided one day, after I'd been there a couple, two years, they decided that the pit were everything from the workshop, all the water, all the, the grease that would go down and be washed away and when we clean the floors, would go down to this one pit and then it would drain off into wherever it would drain off. But they thought that it's been a couple, two, three, four years and that pit's never been cleaned out. So they told me that my job this one day was to take the lid off of this, this pit and go in there and scoop out all of this muck that's been collecting for a period of time. And it reminded me of my, my grandpa's pig farm, you know, the smell and everything with it. But I remember, you know, trying to figure out how do I, how do I get this junk out of there without having to crawl down in it because I don't know if I could crawl back out. It looked like quicksand to me. And so I tried to jerry-rig, you know, to, you know, get as much as I could with a bucket and then reaching down further with whatever scoops. And finally came up with the idea that what I'm going to do is take a five-gallon bucket, I'll tie a uh, 
a rope or something to that handle, I will push on the bucket, take some of the, you know, the different tools that we had with handles and push that bucket down and then I'll pull the rope up and the bucket that's going down like this should just kind of flip up and I'll have some of that muck and mire in there that I can haul away. And so I was trying that, trying that, trying that, and it kind of got stuck. So I, re- I, I knew I could, you know, probably get on top of the bucket with my feet. Kind of do one of these things, more like, you know, higher, and I, if I do it now, I'll fall. So I, I was straddling, you know, the cement floor and down into this pit, pushing on the bucket. And wouldn't you know that five-gallon bucket decided to flip, and when the five-gallon block bucket flipped, so did I. Not out of the pit, but down into the pit. Now I not only you know, have the splatter from when you'd pour it out, now I've got a bunch of it that's up, my, you know, up to go close to my knees. And, um, I mean, folk, it stank. It was, you know, it just, it was just a, an awful situation. And um, so I got it all done, and usually my work hours were from like 12.30 to 6.30, and I'd get back to the late shift for supper, which was at 6.40. And so I'd get done with work, run back to the campus, which was about a mile away, and usually just come running in and sit at the table. And so I'm doing my normal routine, because we were allowed, the late shift workers were allowed to come in their work clothes to supper. So I came into the supper, into the dining hall, and when I came in, it wasn't long before everybody who was there were like, look in my direction. I got my food from the buffet, I sat down, and it wasn't long, maybe about five seconds, everybody in the table cleared away. And then they started clearing away from the tables next to me. And, you know, and me and my ignorance was like, what's wrong with everybody? You know, do I stink that bad? And the answer is... Yes, absolutely. Now, I still had access to that dining hall because I was one of the student body. And so I, it was still that I could go there. I was allowed to go there. But nobody wanted to be around me because I stank so bad. And so there was, you know, and Debbie would work that, that second shift. Uh, she was in the kitchen. And she suggested to me when I, you know, said something to her after supper, she said, you should go back and clean up. That was very insightful. And, uh, you know, the suggestion was don't even bother cleaning the clothes, just simply, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and the, you know, I look at that story and go, okay, what was the problem that I had? That people didn't, you know, did, did the problem I, I have, was it that I shouldn't be allowed on campus? No, I was part of the student body. I, you know, I was enrolled. The problem was I needed to just clean this stuff off because it stank. It's, it's like confession. That sometimes we come close to the Lord and... Or sometimes we come close to other believers and we just plain our lives stink. They stink. And so it's a necessary part of our lives that we have to go through confession once in a while. Actually, that once in a while should be... Yeah, on a daily basis, and should be when we sin. And so there's questions that if you're talking with a baby Christian, I'm going to throw you some questions and some ideas that, that I know that I struggled with that would be important, and so maybe it's just me and nobody else does. But this, is, this is, would be a question that I had in my Bible study was, why is this necessary to do if I'm born again? When we call upon Christ, we're saved from the penalty of sin. And this is an important initial discussion to make sure we understand how we balance this. But saved people still deal with the presence and power of sin. True or false? 
We do. We do still. Is there still, does sin still at times have power in our lives? Sure, sure, okay. Satan still wants to take us down. Would you agree with that? Okay, where he talks about that, you know, that we have the onslaught and we're supposed to put on the uh, armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay, the world around us is not pure. He has to say to Christians, love not the world. Okay, and he gives them that challenge. We know that some of us still struggle with old habits. How do we know that? Ephesians 4 says, put off and... Put on, okay, such things as speech and anger and how we respond to difficulties. Okay, that's a whole other discussion. And so this idea is, okay, now that I'm born again, now that I'm in the family of God, I need to grow up like I am a, a maturing child of God. That's that whole idea of sanctification, that idea of over and over trying to put off the daily influences, the power of sin in my life. Okay, and so this is going to take and continue in all of our lives, and it's going to be stressed really this morning in this morning's message, this one thought, that even mature believers have areas that they need to grow in. Would you agree with that? Okay, okay, and so it's a problem. But what happens if I do fall back into some of the old ways? What happens if all of a sudden... Okay, uh, I'm trying to live for Christ, and I go back. And some of you have done this. I did this. I curse, 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 cuss, 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 vulgar, vulgar language. And I didn't want to, but I went back to using some of that language once in a while. Okay, do you lose your salvation and then have to get saved over and over? Do you remember the lessons that we had back in the previous chapter? What was, the, what was this Joe Friday statement that we said was important? Just the facts, just the facts. We gave you 12 different facts from the Bible that indicate, that show that once a person is born again, they don't have to go back into their mother's womb to get born again again. Okay, spiritually speaking. And so we gave you these, and again, if you don't have this list, I guess there was 13, I was thinking there was 12. If you don't have that list, we'll print those up for you. And that you have this information, but this is critical information that says, okay, the facts of the Bible, not going by feelings, but what are the facts of Scripture? Sometimes, I, you know, when I, when I, I don't know about you, this was me, when I would fall back into something that was stinky spiritually, like using the vulgar language once again, I didn't feel saved. But that didn't change the facts. The facts was I was God's child just being a disobedient child. And so we talked about those facts. We made sure that we talked about this verse. That Jesus says when he gives you eternal life, you shall never. It's the ume, the really emphatic way that they would say in the original language. You would never perish. Neither shall any man pluck you out of my father's hand, which gave them unto me. This is Jesus keeping you. This is the idea. Jesus keeps you in his hand. And he says that twice he says in this text that no man is able. Let me go back there, sorry. That, um, that twice he says no man is able to pluck you out of the Father's hand. It's a very emphatic passage. That once saved, okay, we understand that. We understand that, okay. But what do you do after saved? If you do sin again, if you do fall back, if you use the language or you, you go back to um, you know, lying, you go back to losing your temper, you go back to speeding going down the highway, you go back to you know, being dishonest about a bill, 
Okay, what do you do if that happens? You need to make confession. Okay, now here's the question. I think, I don't remember if I shared it here or somewhere else. Um, the, the, my granddaughter is, is, was struggling here recently on how to get, you know, am I saved, am I not saved? Am I saved, am I not saved? She had prayed a couple times. But she came to her mom and she made this comment. She says, I asked Jesus to take away my sins, but it didn't work because I still sinned. Okay, her struggle is she doesn't understand what it means to take away my sins. Okay, in her little mind, she thought take away sins was take away temptation, take away the power, take away every part of the sin. When we use that phrase, we're saying take away the penalty of the sin. Okay, and so she was struggling. She says, okay, but I, you know, I thought that the, that the Bible says that Jesus will change my heart. How come I sin again? She's not the only one that struggles with that. A lot of believers do. And you need to help them to get over this struggle by explaining this theological tension. And there is tension in the Bible. Does the Bible say that we will not live in sin if we're born again? Yes, it does. It does. First John, he that has the Spirit within him does not commit sin. But then does it say we need to confess our sins? How do you, how do you put these two passages and thoughts together? It's an apparent contradiction in Scripture, or it's a what I'm going to call not a contradiction, but a tension. That needs to be explained to individuals. Yes, when you got saved, did you become a new creature? Yes? Yes, okay, okay. Okay, let's, let's remember this verse. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are... Okay, behold, all things are... Okay, this verse teaches... Yes or no? This verse teaches that when I get saved, all the stuff I used to do will be gone and I'll never struggle again. Then what's it saying? Okay, let's deal with this a little bit more. What does God call someone who is saved in this verse? A new creature. Actually, the word is a new creation. Okay, in the original. Okay, question. What does that mean? You're explaining this to somebody. You've got to explain it to this new convert. What does it mean, your new creation? What's that? Okay, okay, but what is that? If I'm a new creation, what's, that, what's the basic of that say? To somebody who you're sitting there, you're saying, you got saved, therefore you're a new creation. What's that mean? You're a new starting point, a new starting point. Is there going to be change in their life? There has to be, there has to be, okay? Um, they, have, you know, they have been changed completely inside and out. From, you used a term that's really critical in this discussion. The status or position before God have they been changed. They're no longer guilty, but they've been declared justified or righteous. Okay, that's very important. Okay, is there potentially, can they have, the, has God changed some things inside and outside? Yes, he has. Okay, there's been, there's been some change. However, does this change in develop or include a process? Absolutely. 
That's what's in this verse. Okay, there's a change. Uh, Jay, was that you that yelled out starting point? Okay, okay, there's a change that, that old things passed away means I won't have the same old desires all the time. I won't have the same old language all the time. There's going to be a change. There's a birth. And so there's a process involved. The way that this is seen in the verse is critical for you who, who know the Bible more in depth than a new convert. Old things are passed away is a, literally the idea. It's an aorist tense. It means it happened. That It did. Boom. Things have passed away. Your guilt has passed away. Okay? Your penalty has passed away. There's, there's a, a change has taken place. But the next phrase, all things became and keep on becoming new, is a different verb. It's what's called a perfect verb. It means it started here, and it's going to what? Keep going. So the change isn't once and done. The, the change is what? It started and... It continues on. I think that's what you just mentioned. As far as uh, you just said something about a, a maturity, a process. We call this, and if we're going to use big terms, big terms. Your salvation is a how many time event? Okay. And that happened whenever it happened in your life. But then after you're saved, you entered into the process of another, another S. Sanctification. How long does this take? Until we get to heaven. Die or rapture. Okay. And that's, that's a process called sanctification. Okay. That you are set apart to serve the Lord and there will be some battles. And then ultimately, when are you saved? Saved. Okay. Completely all the power, the presence, and all the sin is taken away. When you're in the presence of the Lord. Okay. Okay. So our past guilt is done. And there's going to be a new desire to do what's right. But doing what's right is going to be a process. Some changes will take time, okay? That some old things may show up once in a while. Would you agree with that? That some of the old habits you still battled with? Okay? Yes? No? Okay. Okay. So here we go with that. According to 1 Corinthians, had I asked you to turn here already? Okay, I need you to turn to this text. This is an important text. Because this confirms what we're talking about. And this, is, this brings us into that whole area of confession. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he is making a statement, and it's an important statement about salvation, but it also continues into that area of growth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look at the passage. He says in this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? And so, what type... Then he lists out some of the unrighteous deeds that are typical of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom. Let's just use a broader term. They're not getting into heaven. Okay? If you're, if you're explaining this. Be, he says, be not deceived. Okay, don't let somebody change my, what I'm saying. And then he starts listing. Neither will people who are involved with this on a regular basis, they are not going to get into heaven. What are some of the things he mentions? Fornication, adultery, lying. Okay, okay. He's got a whole list. 
Okay, he's got some passive, some aggressive form of homosexuality. There's greed. Remember, we talked about this. The reviling means to destroy with your tongue. Give me another word for that. What what what's what falls under reviling? What's that? Gossip, slander. Okay, that type of stuff. Okay, um, extortioners is that idea of swindlers. You know, selling something that is not real, lying. You know, changing the balances. All that. It's it's business. It's greed that comes into ripping people off. Okay, so what we have, what do we know? Now think this through, according, according to the verse 11. What do we know about the Corinthian believers? They, they did some of those same things in their past, right? What's the phrase that tells us that? Such were some of you. Okay, so in that church, do they have some gay people in that church? Do they have some people who had committed adultery? Liars, cheats. Yeah, yeah, okay. So a church isn't made up of perfect people. It's made up of sinners who have been forgiven. Okay, that's very important. So they used to do it. But they've been changed because he said such were some of you. And then he says, but now you are... Okay, he gives, he gives three different verbs here. Okay, what happened to him? What do you have there? You were washed, sanctified. Okay, okay. So let's, the washed is referencing to that that's cleansing, that forgiveness. Sanctified is that idea you were set apart by God, designated to live a different lifestyle. Okay. Um, some churches use the thing like this is a holy item. When they say it's a holy item, this has been dedicated to the Lord. Okay, that's what sanctified means. Justified, you're legally pardoned. So from a practical, from a positional, from a legal point of view, okay, they've been changed. They've been given the ability, the power. They've been set apart by God. They can, they can no longer, they, they no longer have to do these things. Does this passage say they never ever will struggle again. Watch the context. This passage, if we stop there, we don't get the, some of the gist. He goes on and says this, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not. I have the word expedient. What do you have? Anybody else? Helpful. Okay, okay. That's the idea. All things are not lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Okay, what's he implying? There is still a battle taking place. Meats for the belly and belly for the meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but it has been dedicated for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Lord hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up his, his uh, raise us up by his power. Okay, that's the whole idea. Our bodies are set apart for a resurrection. To serve in this life and the next, the Lord. Knowing not that your bodies are the members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ? Wait a minute, wait a minute. He is saying, shall a saved person who is a member of Christ take his body and make them a member of a harlot? And his response is, God forbid. 
What? Know ye not that he that is joined to a harlot is one, they become one, for two shall become one flesh. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Therefore, to the believers, he says, verse 18, flee sexual immorality, fornication, which implies that it could still be a problem, a temptation. Okay, and he goes on, he makes a further statement. Okay, every sin that a man does is without the body. He that commits fornication, which makes it a more heinous sin, is it's a sin not only, you know, done outwardly, but it's done against his own body. And then he goes on, and we all know what he's talking about. You know, sexually transmitted diseases, things like that, yes? That they can harm your own body. And then he goes on, he says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with the price. Therefore, you will always glorify God in your body. Is that what it says? No, therefore, you need to make sure. He's implying in this text that our battle's still there for believers. Yes or no? Yes. Yes, there's still battles. Okay, so they're still, they have the ability to glorify God. They've been forgiven. They've been set apart to glorify God. But there is still a battle that can take place. That leads us to this, okay? In 1 John chapter 2, this is a classic passage again. My little children, these things are right down to you. That, okay, now ask the questions. To whom is he writing? A church, group of church people, he calls them little children, so there's a tie to them. They're young converts. Little children are believers in Christ. Okay? What is his desire for these readers? Okay? Keep it real simple. If you're doing a Bible study, you say to the person, now, what does this verse say is God's desire for you? Don't sin. Don't sin. Okay? That you don't sin. How serious, now this is for you and me, how serious is he about this not sinning? Well, you and I can look at and go, he's serious enough to write lengthy epistles about it. He's serious enough to make known that we're going to have a trouble with it and a problem with it. He's serious enough that he expects all believers, including you and me, to not give in to sin. But go on to the next verse. The next verse continues. If any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also in the sins of the whole world. Now remember, it starts off, little children. And then he says, you shouldn't sin. But if any man sins, which includes the little children. Okay? So he says, so what do we learn about this? What do you learn from this ongoing part of the verse? Oh, there's lots of things that we could point out. Sin is still a problem for little children. Okay, In fact, it's a problem for any and all men, including the author. Because the author says he is the propitiation for our sins. So even the apostle John includes himself in saying, okay, there's a battle here. And there is still forgiveness. When we sin, even for those of us who have been born again, God has provided some ready help or a helper. That helper is who? Well, look at the verse. Okay. It's Jesus Christ the... Okay, he's going to be... He's given several terms here. Let's start with the term the righteous. Which means Jesus Christ, what does he have to do with sin? 
He has no sin. And yet is he willing to help us with our sin? He doesn't cast us off. He doesn't reject us, okay, which is very important. He comes to our defense because what term here talks about defense? You, you, somebody already said it. The advocate talks about defending. It's the word parakletos. Do you know any other times parakletos? This is an important word. Do you know where it's used elsewhere? The Holy Spirit is called parakletos. It's used six times in the New Testament. You know which author uses it every time? Duh. John. It's either here or it's in his, his gospel. And he says, Jesus Christ, and remember the Holy Spirit is, stand up for a second please. The Holy Spirit literally comes here. This is what a paracletus does. Okay. It helps provide support. Okay. And in this legal sense, it's the one who supports you in court. Because in the heavenly court, who's accusing you? Satan. Okay. So who's your defense attorney? Jesus Christ. And he's not only a defender, but he is propitiation. Halasmas is the word. Someone who offers a sacrifice. Someone who pleads for mercy, who prays for you. So you have Jesus in court and Jesus in the temple. He is, your, he is coming to your side. And by the way, this verse is saying this is for believers. Believers as well as others that Jesus is willing to take on this task. But for believers in particular, he is saying, if you sin, okay, I am going to come to you. Though I, I hate sin, I am still going to come and I'm going to work in your heart and your life because I consider you valuable. I'll do everything I can to help you to have right fellowship with the Father. He's willing to do this work for all people. Let's expand it. All sins... There should be another all here. All the time. All the time, okay? We can be forgiven of any sin, but this does not mean that he takes away the consequences. Parents, would you forgive your sins if they ask? Would you forgive your children of their sins when they would repent of them? Did you remove the consequences? Not all the time. Okay. I, so when my kids were little, this was, okay, the, our back room was our point uh, of um, disciple slash discipline. And we would say, go to the back room, all the way to the back room. Please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sorry. I'll never do it again. Any of you ever hear those things? Okay. Because they said that, we, we would not correct them. No, if you love them, you... You chasten or chastise them while they're young to help train them. And so we can have forgiveness, but that doesn't mean the consequence. Okay, so uh, you're a drug addict. <laughs> yes, that really summarizes this crowd. Okay, you're a drug addict. You fall back into the addiction. And will God forgive you of it? If you go back and you, have, you slip up. Will God forgive them? Yeah, yeah. Does that mean the consequence is gone? Could you still have the effects of brain damage? Okay, sure. Okay. And so that's what he's talking about. You need to, and I need to explain this. And I know this is very slow. I know that for some of you say, I, I got this down pat. But just, we're taking this through a Bible study. We're trying to explain. Every believer struggles with sin. In fact, do you, are you close by? This, is, this text is really, really important. Um, to just, because... 1 John chapter 8, verse 9, where we're headed for, if we confess our sins, look at the context. 1 John chapter 1, 
This is, this is so important. Here he says, okay, if people in First John chapter 1, okay, if people make this claim, if we say, now that includes us, believers, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, okay, we claim I have fellowship with God, but I still walk in cussing and cursing and all those things. Then what's, what's, the, what's God's response? If we say this, I'm right with God, that's the claim. What is God's response? Okay, no, he didn't say you're not saved. He said, you lie, you lie. Now watch the next claim. Next claim. If we say we have no sin, okay, that's, if we claim that, if we claim we have reached a point where we no longer sin in our lives, I'm perfect. And your spouse says, are you nuts? Okay. But if we claim that, and remember he's writing to Gnostics. The context is he's writing to those in the church who believe that they have arrived. That's Gnosticism. That's the battle of this text. And he says, okay, if we say that we have no sin struggle, what's God's response? We deceive ourselves. Okay. The truth is not in you. Okay. Again, you're a liar. He makes another statement. If, and he says it again. Look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned. I don't have a sin struggle. What's the response? Okay. You're calling God a liar. Okay. So yes, am I forgiven of my sins? Yes. But I will still struggle. Okay. As I struggle, do I have help? Yes, yes, because if we confess our sins, he is faithful. And that's the context of this verse that is all about confession. It is talking to people who are struggling with sin and some who are saying, I've arrived, I'm not. And he's saying, no, wait a minute. You know, we haven't reached perfection. We still have battle with sin. And that doesn't mean that we're without hope, okay, which is a beautiful passage. But, and this is, this is an important text, go to, go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now, this seems to be a contradiction. And if you're sitting there with a new convert, a baby Christian, or if you're sitting with some individual who says you can lose your salvation, here's the text you've got to deal with. Okay? In 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We looked at these verses here in the last couple weeks. Verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of Man was manifested. He may destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remains in him. Who's the seed that remains in us? Okay. Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit. Okay. Uh, he cannot sin because he is born of God. Okay. Wait, uh, wait, wait. Hold it. Hold it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We need to confess our sins. We. Okay. He's faithful and just. But First John 3 says we don't sin any. We don't sin. If we sin... We're, we're, that shows we're not saved. But he's writing to save people about what to do when they do sin. So which one is it? You got it. Okay. And this, okay. Well, let me explain. Okay. Part of this is revealed in their context and part of it's revealed in the verbiage. Okay. We're talking about the idea of, okay, I'm still occasionally sinning. It's still in this process. But in 1 John chapter 3, what is talked about in that text? What's that context? What type of sin? 
Habitual. Let's make it habitual. Let's, let's use a different phrase, okay, to help people understand. Okay, let's use it this way. Battling to overcome sin. But 1 John 3 is basically a lifestyle of willful sin. Does that make sense? There's a total, they're talking about different things. Does, does that, is that clear? Yes? No? Okay. Can't, if we willfully choose to live in a lifestyle of constant sin, drunkenness, what were some of the others? Fornication, adultery, homosexuality, that, that um, what else was it? The greed, the, uh, what was it? The extortion, the, the reviling. If we choose, and that's our choice to live there regularly, daily, what does that say? We're not saved. What if we're saved from that stuff, but periodically, ugh, I go back to lying? Then what do I have? I have an advocate, and I have a propitiation that helps defend me when I do what? When I confess my sins. Me as a little child, growing through, will still battle. I don't lose my relationship with God, but I lose my fellowship with God. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's remind ourselves. Okay, relationship with God is something that is permanent, solid, unbreakable, determines our eternal destiny. That's the blue. It never changes. Once it happens, we got this blueness in our life. Okay? It's solid. That thing doesn't, it doesn't change. But our fellowship with God, okay, depends on obedience, our daily joy. It can grow and it can shrink depending upon what? Our interaction with the Lord. Make sense? Yes? No? Okay, so this is very important to explain. Our relationship with God's children is eternal, unchanging, while our fellowship can be hindered by giving in to sin. Okay? Our fellowship grows or shrink. Our fellowship will grow, the green part of our life will grow as the sin continues to, sh and our sin will continue to shrink. L let me see if I can illustrate it this way. You're raising your kids. You're following scriptures. When should be the predominant part of discipline? When they're young and in the beginning, okay, should be the predominant part of discipline. In fact, um, please understand. If you're, I'm going to use the word spanking, okay. If you're giving any type of spankings to a child, and that can be a variety of however you're going to do it, should those spankings increase as they get older, or should they be decreasing as they get older? decreasing. Why? They're learning. They're responding. They're learning that they should obey you. Could there still be occasional spanks? Yes. But typically the, the job of spanking is done early on. The majority is the majority preschool or post-school. Yeah, preschool or post-school. Preschool. Okay. So if you're doing it right biblically, by the time that they get a little bit older, if a, a child will, 
What does it say? Trampeth the child in the way that he should go, and he will not depart from it. Okay, his whisker-bearing years, okay, is, the, is literally the Hebrews. When they start bearing whiskers, which is about what years? Okay, through puberty, early teens. So don't, don't come along and say, oh, teen years, they're, 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 all teens are, are going to be rebellious. What, what do the Amish call it? Rum, shum, shum, shum. Yeah, okay. Okay. According to the Word of God, that's not normal. If you're training biblically, you train them, you're tough early, and that gives dividends when? As time goes by. Okay. Same thing is true for us. When is, when is the time that we're going to see most of the time that we have to do the conviction, the discipline of the Lord? Early? Yeah. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so you and I can say, okay, wait a minute. Yeah, we don't do he and his sins. Well, what about you know, extending your credit way beyond what it should be? What about losing your temper at home? What about nobody seeing what you're looking on on the computer? What about gossip? These are respectable sins that at times we don't even bother confessing. But what happens is God doesn't want us to sin in any of these areas. We still struggle. When we sin, that doesn't mean we're not saved. However, there are negative consequences to our sin. God has provided an answer to help us when we sin. It involves confession. And this confession, okay, how would you respond to this? How would you respond to somebody? Why should I bother with confessing? For that matter, why should I even try to battle to overcome sin? I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. So I can live any old way I want. How would you respond to that? Be ye holy. With scripture that would say, be ye holy, I am holy. What would you say? You're breaking the fellowship. We're back to that fellowship illustration. That fine, you, you, got, you got the blue box, but what's happening to your green box? It's disappearing, your fellowship. Here, I would remind them, there are consequences for sinning in this life and in the eternal life. There are consequences for a believer sinning. Yes? Yes. Let's talk about a couple of those consequences. You offend God. Psalm 51. We all know Psalm 51. It is David confessing. What has been David's sin? So you're sitting with the person, you're saying, I want to tell you about King David. Now they're re- referencing Psalm 51. You better tell the story of David because most people don't know the story. They know what story about David? David and Goliath. We all, we all know that one. But do they know the story of David and Bathsheba? Okay. And so if you have somebody who has some Bible understanding, they probably don't know David and Bathsheba because in this day and age, is the David and Bathsheba going to be the story that teachers are going to teach? Okay, so David and Bathsheba, you all know the story, okay? Let's assume you know the story that David is the king, he's on the throne, he's, you know, there's battles taking place, he's successful, he's God's man, he is called what by God? The apple of, my God, of his eye, okay, God loves him, okay? A man after God's, okay, okay, he's a good man, okay? So we'll put that up there, okay? And David... Looks out one night and he sees Bathsheba um, taking a bath on her roof. Okay, which, by the way, you know, they didn't have indoor plumbing. It was normal that that would do, you know, this could happen. But she's there taking a bath. He sees, he desires, and he goes after. He brings her to the palace to have sex, and she conceives a baby. 
She conceives the baby, and it's somebody else's wife. So how's he going to cover it up? Remember? He brings the husband back from battle and says, Hey, you're on leave. Go home to your wife. With the assumption that they're going to have physical relations, and then they can just claim it's his baby. But the husband refuses to go. His troops underneath him are out to battle, so how can I go home and enjoy my wife when their leave was a whole lot different than our modern military? Okay, And so David gets the man drunk because surely if he's drunk, he's going to be out of his senses, lose self-control, and go home to be with his wife. He doesn't. Okay, So David sends a note when he sends him back to his troops. And in this note that the man doesn't open but gives to the general in charge of the battle that basically says, make sure the bearer of this note is in the front lines. You retreat and leave him up front so he is killed in battle. Okay, and it'll all cover up. Okay, so David had an affair. What else did he do wrong in this thing? Okay, okay, okay. Manipulates covering up the sin. Gets a person drunk. By the way, Old Testament, woe unto him that serves strong drink to another person. Okay, he ordered an accidental death. He covers up his affair by marrying the woman ASAP. And God says, it's okay, you're the king. Oh, no, 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 no. Psalm 51. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. What does David say about his sin in this verse? It's against God. Okay, that's the key thought. Bob, Bob, thank you for saying. He said God saw it, all of it, okay? Did David think he covered it up? It was primarily against God. Did he sin against other people? Yes, but he, God, he says it was primarily. It was evil in the sight of God. This was evil in the sight of God. What he had done. Was it common in the culture? Was it acceptable for kings to take other men's wives? But not in God's law. Not in God's law. So then he says, okay, that...